Well, grab a seat if you haven't already. Welcome back to Easter Sunday. You know, on my uh, list, as uh, really not as a pastor, but as a believer, I know a lot of pastors share this dream, but my bucket list includes traveling, traveling to the Holy Land to Israel and seeing the garden tomb. Is that on anybody else's bucket list here to go to Israel? We should just plan a church trip, shouldn't we? That'd be awesome to the Holy Land. Um, so there's this traditional site that is believed to be the place where Jesus was buried. It's called the Garden Tomb. And nearly all scholars agree that it was either this garden tomb or one very similar to it. Why is it that we don't know exactly where Jesus was buried? Because there was no body ever produced. There is nothing to uncover. So it makes it hard to determine an exact burial place. Um, what we know about the garden tomb is revealed, or I should say what we know about the burial place of, of Jesus, regardless of whether or not it's the garden tomb, is revealed to us in the Gospels. Uh, accounts of Jesus' life written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four men give us information like this. They said Jesus' tomb was outside the walls of a city. The garden tomb and a number of other sites that are considered to possibly be the burial place of Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? In the Holy Land, tour buses cross each other going to different burial places of Jesus. That literally happens. And so uh, they say, too, that the burial place of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us, um, is at a thoroughfare, a crossing of a lot of people. We see um, in our children's uh, books and and uh, on the flannel graph, and when we're kids in Sunday school, and all this stuff, that, that it's a rural place, the tomb is. Um, it's not. The tomb was, was at the outskirts of a city, a place where lots of people were passing by. It was not in the countryside. Hebrews tells us, in addition, that the tomb is just outside of a gate, a gate of the city. And uh, the garden tomb qualifies in that way. The Gospels tell us that historically this was close by a public place of execution. The scriptures tell us that Golgotha, the place of the skull, was where Jesus died. And so the garden tomb is in close vicinity to Golgotha as are a number of other burial sites. The Gospels also tell us that Jesus' tomb was rock-hewn or carved in stone. So it was an expensive burial place. That was a fulfillment of prophecy uh, written some 500 years before Jesus. Yes, men did. Roughly 25% of the Bible is prophecy. They predicted the future. Much of it came to fulfillment in the life and work of Jesus. And in this case, um, someone prophesied that Jesus would be buried among the rich, among the affluent. Though he was homeless, though he was poor, that he'd receive a rich man's burial. And indeed he did. We'll read it this morning. A guy named Joseph, who was affluent, gifts to Jesus a tomb. 
makes sense that it was rock hewn as described in the Bible because those were the expensive caskets or tombs in the day, not unlike a hand carved wooden casket would be high in price today. The garden tomb qualifies there as well. Another reason the garden tomb is likely uh, the place of Jesus' burial is that to the right of the entrance was the burial chamber. That's what the Gospels describe. In other words, when you walk in the Gospel, or rather the garden tomb, uh, you'll enter and then you'll turn to the right and there is the burial chamber. So it has that in common with the Gospel account. Um, Another one. We're told in the Gospels that upon entering the tomb, the disciples had to stoop. They had to lower their heads. We're going to read that this morning in Luke's account. And if you go to the garden tomb, I'm told, uh, today you don't have to stoop your head. But that is because over a quarter of a million people visit that site annually. So what happened? They enlarged it, the opening, so it would accommodate more visitors. And that was documented. It's a part of its history as a tourism site. And so it used to be that you would have to stoop to get into the garden tomb. Last one. Of course, the main requirement of the garden tomb being a potential spot for the burial of Jesus Christ is that it is what? It's empty. There's not a body in there. And this is what distinguishes Christianity from the other major world religions. Let's take Judaism, for example. Who is in Abraham's tomb this morning? Abraham is. Who's in Buddha's tomb this morning? Well, Buddha is. Who's in Muhammad's tomb this morning? Muhammad's there. Verifiably so. Who's in Jesus' tomb? A quarter of a million tourists. Because Jesus isn't there. Amen. It's empty. Hallelujah. Doesn't it make sense that we don't know where it is? Just think about it for a minute. Rationally, doesn't it make sense? If the body's there, people show up to pay respects. Do they or don't they? They do. And so we have shrines. What becomes a shrine? People leave objects and artifacts and flowers because it's a place of, uh, to remember, to honor, to venerate a saint that has come before. Well, let me ask you this. If the guy gets up and walks out of his tomb and eats a piece of broiled fish with his friends and has people touch his hands and feet and appears live to crowds of upwards of 500 people on multiple occasions over 40 days, does or doesn't the tomb lose a little bit of significance as a place of meaning? It loses significance. It's not as important. So people forget over the course of generations where it is. And that is why we don't know if it's a garden tomb or some other tomb. Because Jesus isn't there. And he wasn't there but a part of three days after his death. Amen. Amen. So let's read the account this morning 
Luke chapter 23, verse 50, to chapter 24, verse 12. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who'd not consented to their decision and action. In other words, he was for Jesus. He wasn't for his, his crucifixion. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down. He wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who'd come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. By the way, this is one of the chief arguments for the resurrection of Jesus is that women were the ones that found the empty tomb. Because in this day and age, um, we have come so far, thank goodness to the glory of God, but women's testimony it wasn't valid. It wasn't even acceptable in a court of law. So if you were to make up the story of a resurrected man and conceive it in your mind and try to convince everybody of it being the case, you wouldn't have penned it in the script that women found the empty tomb. Verse 24 or rather chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. We assume these are angels and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground the men said to them why do you seek the living among the dead he is not here he's risen remember how he told you while he was living in galilee that the son of man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise and they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to the apostles a what? An idle tale, fictitious, fable, fallacy. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran. This is one of the only things Peter did right. And he ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. So let's talk about what has taken place. Jesus Christ was crucified and he actually died. 
He experienced horrendous treatment on the cross. We have a word in English that was developed from the Roman experience of crucifixion. What is it? Excruciating. That word was invented, put into human language to describe a type of pain that people had not until that point experienced. The Romans perfected what they considered to be a creative art form. They devised newer, more extensive, more prolonged, more heightened ways for people to die. It was saved, crucifixion was, for the very worst of criminals. Isn't it ironic then that this is the way Jesus died? All he did was to tell the truth. All he did was to explain many times that he was, in fact, God. And he was murdered for telling that truth. They made it appear that he'd been given due process. They arrested him in the middle of the night under darkness while everybody else was sleeping. This is, this is like politicians meeting on a holiday weekend to enact legislation so nobody will notice. They mocked him with a false trial. They set up false witnesses to testify who didn't, by the way, even agree with each other. And yet somehow he was sentenced by the court of a public opinion to death. And so they beat him. His arms were placed over his head, his back, his his neck, his legs, his buttocks were exposed. And the Romans had a tool that they used to beat criminals called a cat of nine tails, which was leather straps that were laced with fragments of bone and rock and metal balls for tenderizing. And they would give it a moderate crack, just enough so that those items latched into the victim's skin. And they would give it a little tug to make sure it was secure. And then they would proceed to rip the whip from the victim's body. It was not uncommon. So deep were the lacerations to see a human rib flying through the air. Men died from this alone. Men died from it so often that they coined a phrase called 40 lashes minus one, the prevailing thought being that if a human being takes 40 or more lashes from the whip, they'll die. So we need to keep it limited to 39 or less so that we can move on to the really exciting stuff being crucifixion. 
Jesus needed at this point, as depicted in the Passion of the Christ, which I would recommend you watch if you haven't, or if you haven't in some time. He needed a hospital. He was given instead a cross. Likely just the crossbar and not the vertical piece. It weighed about 100 pounds. It was uh, recycled timber, likely that had been used for other victims. It had the sweat, the blood of previously executed prisoners. The Romans were very, very resourceful people, a resourceful civilization. And he carried this cross to the point where he fell down under the weight of it. As we talked about on Good Friday, a man named Simon of Cyrene was picked to carry it from that point. Later we read that Jesus, after death, his, his rib cage was pierced underneath his rib cage by an executioner's spear just to ensure that he was dead. Not a bone was broken on his body. It went under his rib cage, and the Bible says that his heart sack was pierced and both blood and water flowed, which according to medical uh, professionals means that at some point his heart suffered a contusion. He was having a heart attack that likely while other men had asphyxiated or suffocated from a lack of oxygen, that Jesus literally died from a broken heart. Prior to this, of course, he was given a crown of thorns on his head that would be pressed down into his skull. His beard was ripped off of his face. How many of you men wince when you pluck an eyebrow? His beard was ripped from his face. Meanwhile, Jesus is yelling violent, salacious, egregious comments at his executioners like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Mary, mother, Behold your son. Not a real son, his friend, John. John, behold your mother. In other words, please take care of my mom. I can't do it any longer. Vile, vile comments from the mouth of Jesus. It is finished. He cried out, among seven other sayings. He also committed his hands into his father's, rather his spirit into his father's hands. And then his body slouched. He died. To ensure that he was dead, again, a professional delivered the insurance. And then, after his body had been taken down and wrapped by Joseph in probably 100 pounds of linens and spices, a portion of three days later, he's alive again. A hundred percent dead. 
and then 100% alive. He appeared to friends. He appeared to enemies. He appeared to women. He appeared to men. He appeared to individuals. He appeared to crowds. Over again, 40 days, secular historians have written about Jesus post-mortem, post-death, post-resurrection. And have recorded his interactions with people. You need to understand at the center of humanity isn't some place, some temple, some mosque, some church even, some house of worship, some artifact, some statue. At the center of Christianity is a man who died and then was alive again. That's what we build our faith on. This wasn't a revival like we see in ER rooms across the world where somebody comes back to life and then a period of days or months or years or even decades later dies again. I mean, revival when when compared to resurrection is like, oh, okay, okay, defib hit, okay, good for, great. (laughs) This is something different. This is resurrection. This isn't reincarnation. When you die, your spirit flutters to some other state of being or, or shell or husk or some animal. This is resurrection, which means you die, you rise again, and then you don't die again. Resurrection literally means life after life and after death. And the beautiful thing is, to those who place their faith in Jesus, we also experience not a revival, not a reincarnation, but a resurrection. The Apostle Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. With God. The thief on the cross was told by Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise. And while Jesus has already come once, the scriptures tell us he's coming again at a time that only he knows. So if anybody predicts is happening in the year 2000 or the year 2045 or whatever the case may be, I don't care if it's the Mayans who say it or fundamentalist Christian who says it or a guy with charts and graphs all over his wall that says it or a guy that's foaming at the mouth when he says it, it's not true. It cannot be accurate because the Bible says that only God knows the time and the hour when he will come a second time. And when he does, Zechariah 14 says he's going to touch down, touch down on the mount of what? Of olives. I uh, attended college in Cleveland, Tennessee, and there was literally a church, a cult of people who built a ramp. To my knowledge, you can visit it to this day, a ramp in their backyard of the church. 
and it was for Jesus to descend and touch ground on their church property on a Harley Davidson. That's what they believe, no kidding. Like, can you imagine owning the home next door when this ramp's going up? It's like devalued, right? I just lost my entire investment. Jesus isn't going to touch down on that ramp in Cleveland, Tennessee. He may be riding a Harley. Actually, he's going to be riding a white horse, the scripture says, which is kind of similar to a Harley. And he's going to have tattoos, which is kind of similar to a lot of Harley riders. But he's going to touch down, and the Bible says that when his foot hits, the mountain is going to split, and every invention of man is going to disappear into the valley. And then that Jesus is going to call down out of the heavens a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Nothing that man has made will exist in the new city. Bob Culp can't even roof anything in heaven. It's going to be newly created by God. It's just home in North Carolina a couple weeks ago, and my grandfather, who is such a saint, I'm so privileged to have a grandfather who loves Jesus, Cool story, my grandfather on my mom's side started attending church where my grandfather on my dad's side was preacher. And my grandfather on my dad's side led my grandfather on my mother's side to Jesus. He preached, and my grandfather on my mom's side came forward and gave his life to the Lord, started bringing their daughter to youth group where she met my dad, and they fell in love and became high school sweethearts, and the rest is history. So that grandfather who gave his life to Jesus under the ministry of my other grandfather prays every morning. He sits at his table, and he has a cup of Folgers coffee. He will not drink anything else. Two sweet and low packets, and he prays. He reads his word, and he prays. And he's wearing always a white Hanes t-shirt tucked into dark pleated blue jeans. I don't even know where you find dark pleated blue jeans, but he's got them, and he wears them, and every day it's the same outfit. No kidding. Like, since I was born, it's the same outfit. I don't know if he's got one or several that he rotates, but it's his same outfit. I mean, you look through the picture books, and there he is, Hawaii, dark jeans, white t-shirt. Rockies in Canada, dark jeans, white t-shirt, like morning, night, doesn't matter, fall, spring, dark jeans, white t-shirt. He sits there in those dark jeans and, and white t-shirt and he just calls down heaven over our family. And he told me, when I was home, he said, Zach, I'm ready to go be with Jesus. Late 80s, I'm ready to go be with Jesus. Lost my grandmother several years ago. I'm ready to go be with Jesus. What he was saying was, I'm ready for my resurrection. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to rise again into the new city. 
paradise to be with Jesus. And there was no remorse. There was no sorrow. There was nothing but joy on his face. And there was nothing but light in his eyes. And it was as if he had internalized or made his favorite song, that Fanny Crosby hymn that says, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. What he was saying was, I know in my knower that I'm saved and nobody can convince me otherwise. And so I can die in peace and be resurrected like Jesus. And I want you to know that Jesus' death and resurrection makes that a possibility for me too and for you too. The thief on the cross experienced it. Those weren't two guys, good and bad. Those were two bad guys. One of them mocked Jesus. The other one said, what are you doing? Can't you see he's the son of God? Jesus, I know you haven't sinned, but I want you to know that I have. Please, please take me to heaven with you. And Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. The other one did not have that luxury. And so I just want to beg you this morning. You have until your last breath, just like the thief, to accept Jesus and become a Christian. You don't have to do it today. You don't. The problem is we never know when we're going to what? We never know when we're going to kick the bucket. That's why I pray you have that blessed assurance, just like my grandfather does, not in your late 80s, but in your 60s or 50s or 40s or 20s or teens. So you'll know and so that you can enjoy life with him as my grandfather has. So if you'll bow your head this morning, And close your eyes. I just want to ask if there's anybody here who would like to meet Jesus, who'd like to become a Christian, who'd like to receive assurance unto resurrection, who'd like to know confidently in your mind that you belong to Christ, that he belongs to you, and that the new city will be a place that you inhabit Is there anybody here who would raise your hand on Easter Sunday 2019 and say, I'm tired of sitting on the fence. I'm tired of being indifferent. Today's my day. I want to meet Jesus. I want to become a Christian. Would you raise your hand? Praise the Lord. I see that hand. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Anybody else here today want to become a Christian? Five did at our Good Friday service. Another has now. Anybody else here? Want to know in your knower that you're saved. Praise the Lord. Another hand. Awesome. Thank you, Holy Spirit. If your palms are a little sweaty and your heart's beating, it's not... I didn't call you by name. This is God. This is your moment for salvation. This is where you say, I fall short. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I can't do this. I can't get there on my own. There's no ramp I could build. It's high enough. Anybody else?
give you just another moment. I'd like to invite everybody, you can look up here at me, to pray a prayer along with me, both those of you who know Jesus already. By the way, if you are a Christian or you just raise your hand and you want to become a Christian for the first time, would you raise your hand right now if you love Jesus Christ or if you just became a Christian? If you just raise your hand, express that you want to become a Christian. Wonderful. Awesome. I'd like to invite all of you to pray this prayer after me. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. I'm a sinner. I fall short. I cannot help myself. I cannot save myself. I need forgiveness. I believe that you died and rose again. And that therefore, you can forgive me of my sins. And that you're preparing a home for me. And so today, I have a clean conscience. I have a blessed assurance. I know in my knower that I'm a child of the King. That I'm loved. And that I'll enjoy your company forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let me say this. The Bible says that when somebody accepts Jesus, and two did this morning, that heaven erupts and that the angels throw a party and that, and that they are more excited that a single individual came to faith than they are that 99 other people are righteous and didn't need to raise their hands. So I would submit that it's okay for you and I to, to applaud and celebrate what God has done this morning. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, Father, we thank you for what you did today, Lord, in our midst on Easter Sunday, a day that you conquered death. You also conquered spiritual death in the lives of some here and Lord, as we are generous towards you with our resources and taking our offering this morning, I just pray you would continue to bless our church. Lord, you have helped us raise, generate $650,000 toward a new church home. I pray you would continue to inspire people out of gratitude for what you've done to be generous so that we might be in a permanent church home. Beginning in May of 2020, we love you. We're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.